From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin. Thank you for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, your parents' basement, loft, taxi, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in to one of the podcasts, TalkZone.com, those of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, and of course, on the Conspiracy Show app, the free downloads. So however and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Thomas J. Colbert is uh, standing by. He and his uh, cold case team may have cracked a very cold case indeed. Do you remember the name D.B. Cooper? This was the skyjacker who jumped out of a jet with a parachute and $200,000 in ransom money uh, back in 1971, never to be heard from again and presumed dead. Well, not so fast, says my guest, and we'll get to that full story in minutes. Um, now, let me see. Oh, I, I mentioned how to, uh, to stream us on YouTube, the HOA. Uh, oh, take a walk on the dark side. It's fast approaching. Take a walk on the dark side. Rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. That's my next live event. Uh, Saturday, October the 15th. Just a couple of weeks left to get tickets, and I'll be presenting rock historian, best-selling author R. Gary Patterson, live on stage, and uh, several special guests via Skype to relate some incredible and never-before-heard stories. It's sort of like rock and roll meets the Twilight Zone. Uh, for more information and to purchase tickets, go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. Live events page, strangeplanet.ca. Uh, next week on the program, just a reminder, Stanton Friedman, the godfather, the grandfather, if you will, of ufology, and his co-author Kathleen Marden will be along to talk about fact fiction and UFOs, their new book. And our resident paranormal investigator, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, uh, will also be with us. All right. Uh, let's talk a D.B. Cooper. In 1971, a skyjacker with a briefcase bomb demanded a $200,000 ransom and a parachute. Then he vanished out the jet's back door and became an instant legend. Now, a determined citizen sleuth has assembled a 40-member cold case team, spearheaded by former FBI agents, to solve the mystery of D.B. Cooper. And after a five-year quest, they believe they've succeeded with a fugitive at Trail's End. Thomas Colbert worked in numerous story development roles at the CBS News-owned and operated Los Angeles station, KCBS, and Paramount Television. He eventually created his own national true story research service, which was credited with discovering 19 movies for the big and small screen, and he is the, the co-author of The Last Master Outlaw, how he outfoxed the FBI six times, but not a cold case team. Thomas, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great, Richard. And I might mention to you, I pronounce it the French-Canadian Colbert. Way, Steve Colbert. All right. Thank you for that. Thomas Colbert. Wonderful. Now, um, let's. for those not familiar with the D.B. Cooper case, and I sort of gave just a very uh, quick th- sort of thumbnail sketch, uh, because, my Lord, we are going back f- nearly half a century now, 45 years ago. Uh, and this was the age, I remember, you know, this period of time, there were, there were just hijackings, it seemed like every week going on in the United States. Uh, just give us a bit of the backstory of, of, of how, uh, who D.B. Cooper was thought to be, how he ended up on that plane, uh, and, and, uh, just sort of walk us through the, the initial uh, parts of the story. Sure. The, uh, 
you mentioned how many hijackings. There were close to anywhere between 160, 200. I can't remember the exact figure. Between 68 and 72, it was a massive period of hijacking. But this was the first one not going to Cuba, not going to Russia, not planning to meet a boyfriend somewhere. This was for cash. And uh, this was a very sophisticated job, and it involved a amount of money that a paratrooper could actually carry without jeopardizing his flight, meaning his uh, glide pattern. And that's what the FBI, uh, FBI determined. Uh, he could carry 22-some-odd pounds of money. Uh, nobody expected it. Uh, in fact, this was a time when you could walk on a plane with a cigarette and a briefcase. Nobody would check it out. Uh, you could smoke. Uh, it, it was a different time. And he took advantage of that and sat himself in the back seat so he could monitor everyone. And the passengers were not told of his briefcase bomb. This man had what he claimed to be a bomb in his briefcase on a short flight between Portland to Seattle. And only the stewardesses, and that's what they still insist being called, I've befriended all three of them, <laughs> stewardesses and the uh, pilot crew right. were aware. Everyone else was told it was an engine problem. Very interesting. So they kept it inside. Right. Now, how did we? How did the name D.B. Cooper come to our attention? Why that name? He signed his name on a boarding pass, Dan Cooper. And when they went looking for this guy after he vanished, uh, the authorities uh, at first thought, well, maybe the bad guy used his own name. So let's start looking up Coopers. <laughs> and they went into police stations, and they went into newsrooms, and, and a reporter, depending who you believe, an AP or UPI, they're competitive even for this claim, one of them overheard someone saying, well, which one are we seeing next? Let's go see D.B. Cooper. And the name stuck. Ah, and again, those are the days when you didn't have to have all the identification, photo ID, in order to get on a plane. That's right. You could just walk on. So at, at some point, the um, the $200,000 in ransom is delivered, and the passengers uh, get off, and then he flies off again, supposedly en route to, to Mexico with just him and the crew. Don't forget the parachutes. Right, right, yes. He asked for parachutes as well. Change. He, he let the pass, passengers go for four, pass, uh, four parachutes, and that was brilliant when you think about it because – Obviously, uh, he was probably worried they were going to give him dummy shoots. So by insisting on four, they were left to believe he might be taken a hostage. So they couldn't uh, dummy him up. That is brilliant. That is very brilliant when you think about it. Right. And then uh, he, he, he goes to the back and, and, uh, and, and jumps out. Now, where are we at? 30,000 feet? How, far, how high up are we at this point? Uh, about 10,000 10, feet Okay. What, uh, the height was, yeah. 10,000 feet. All right. And uh, in the aftermath, I mean, do they find a parachute? Uh, did they, what did they find? They found nothing. Now, they did massive searches. First of all, um, this was Thanksgiving weekend, a long weekend, and he jumped on Thanksgiving Eve. Uh, I think that was a plan. Uh, his, he obviously knew that uh, some of the more senior law enforcement may be off or uh, away from the job, and it would take time. There, it was an 11-hour period between the time he jumped and the first searches began. Yeah, that's a lot of time. That's a lot. That's a half a day. Uh, you can put a lot of uh, mileage uh, between you and the authorities in 11 hours, even on foot. Yeah, and 
He also did something else that was brilliant. Uh, he insisted uh, that he left it to the crew, you decide which route you want to go south. I just want to go to Mexico. Well, D.B. Cooper had aviation background. That was determined by uh, studying his uh, statements to the stewardesses and statements to the uh, crew over the uh, phone in the plane. Um, and he did not designate a route south. Well, he was smart enough to know, and we believe our Cooper suspect was up there for four to five months studying the routes of the aircraft. He is a uh, paratrooper, uh, pilot, both fixed wing and helicopter, uh, very knowledgeable, and apparently even had uh, uh, halo jumping, high altitude, low opening, something that was taught to the special forces in Vietnam. And our suspect had training with the special forces and CIA in Vietnam, off the books missions with them. And this so is here is a man who says, I don't care which route you go, uh, as long as I get to New Mexico, and he knew there were only two routes. One was over the ocean, and one was a vector flight right over Portland. That was strategic. Without saying which one, the FBI couldn't plant cars and agents at highways. They didn't know which route the aircraft was going to go. They couldn't be there in time. And they couldn't track it with a transponder? Not at that time. No. They didn't really have them at that period. Okay. But why would he risk them deciding to fly over the ocean? He can't bail out over the ocean, can he? Well, he knew by flying at 200 miles an hour at 10,000 feet, that wouldn't be an option. Uh, in fact, when the crew, they wanted to go over the ocean, but Sacramento, California, where the headquarters for FAA was, overruled them and said, no, you go down and uh, the approach through Portland. Because they were worried in an aircraft flying that low and slow, wonder if they had a problem. They're in the drink. So he must have known that, although he gave them the choice, he must have known the route they were going to take. Exactly. It was brilliant. And he studied that route. He was up there for four to five months. We believe he told, we have witnesses, 14 witnesses in two towns where he lived under an alias. One of his 21 aliases we have found in his 45 years. He lived there for four to five months, you'll love this, as a Swiss baron, walking America. <laughs> Norman de Winter was his name. Now, the reason we know his name, not only do we have older witnesses that are my age, former boomers now, uh, he was in the town, those two towns as a Swiss baron, and he was staying with the most affluent families. He was the guest at a ball in Astoria, the Admiral's Ball. Uh, they all bought it. And we not only have witnesses in the last month Richard, we found two old articles that the historian paper didn't even know they had. None of the former journalists are alive. And it was a pack rat. Our 13th and 14th members, witnesses, found the articles that they had saved documenting everything about Normandy winter's stay in town. Thomas Colbert is uh, my guest, the co-author of The Last Master Outlaw, How He Outfoxed the FBI Six Times But Not a Cold Case Team. And the he in this story is the legendary D.B. Cooper, who jumped out of the back of a jet in 1971 with $200,000 in ransom and a parachute never to be heard from again, perhaps until now. Back with more on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Welcome back. Thomas J. Colbert stays with us. He, the co-author of The Last Master Outlaw, how he outfoxed the FBI six times, but not a cold case team. We're talking about the legendary D.B. Cooper, who jumped out of the back of a jet with $200,000 in ransom money and a parachute back in 1971 over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen from again. Uh, or heard from again, rather, uh, uh, perhaps until now. And uh, uh, Thomas, uh, before we get into how you and how and why and when uh, you uh, assembled this cold case team, you know, the um, I'm just barely old enough to remember the D.B. Cooper, and uh, uh, but there was it was almost like you know after Elvis died, there were all these Elvis sightings, and and uh, the media was just so transfixed by. The Elvis could be alive story, and there was, you know, Geraldo built a career on that, and so forth. But there was sort of a similar thing with DB Cooper, and, and as a former newsman at, at um, in, in LA, I mean, were you receiving like tips and your colleagues all these tips about DB Cooper? Yeah, I was the senior researcher at the CBS station in Los Angeles, and uh, yeah, probably every few months we'd get a call or we'd get a stack of court documents sent to us. Uh, those were never easy calls to hang up. I'm sure you can appreciate that, Richard, sure, Richard when sure. they come in. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, everybody thinks they know who it is. It, I always, it basically boiled down to people were enamored and, and uh, in love with the ideal of fame, uh, idea of fame and fortune, uh, but they were always hard hang-ups. And... Uh, I mean, you, you're right. People became enamored with him too. I mean, he he became kind of a, a Robin Hood in many people's minds. Uh, and when you think about the ingenuity, I mean, something like that could never happen again. With what with GPS and post 9/11, all of the security and so forth. Is that why you called him the last master outlaw? Well, it was kind of you've kind of touched on both reasons. Number one, uh, they referred to him as a Robin Hood. Well, uh, cops always corrected me when I said that. They'd say, you're mispronouncing it's robbing hood. <laughs> right. And the bottom line is, is that Master Outlaw was another name for the actual uh, character Robin Hood. Back ah. in the days in London, three to 400 years ago in, in England, in the forests, the heads of the gangs were called uh, Master Outlaws, and they literally crowned them like kings. That's what Robin Hood was, and that's a synonym used in his book. I use and I use the term Robin Hood because, as you pointed out, uh, some of the uh, the uh, hippies back then, and even some professors and sociologists called him a Robin Hood. Uh, <laughs> Robin Hood, and and he never returned any money to anybody, but they the the, uh, the uh, title stuck. Um, but uh, yeah, it it really was the end of an era. This is, as you pointed out, before CSI, before crime banks, before uh, cameras in, in, in stores, you literally could vanish. And he really is the last outlaw of the Old West when you think about it. Right. Uh, it was, uh, you remember the movie uh, 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 Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Oh, yes. The end yes. Of the era. That Came around the same time, about that same time. <laughs> uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the actual characters, the real people portrayed in the movie, was the late 1800s, and they commented, who are those guys following us? That was when banks decided to hire their own security people to track bad guys. That ended that outlaw era. The Pinkerton men. Right. And then came the, uh, the Butch Cass, I'm sorry, the uh, Bonnie and Clyde's, the, the gangsters. Well, the FBI threw in logistics and statistics and started tracking those guys down. That ended that era. 
this was the last person before, last bad guy before modern tools came in. Did you have a bit kind of a grudging admiration for him back then? Well, I may have as a teenager. I was just going into high school uh, when it happened. I remember the my dad at the, the dining room table showing me the front page and hearing about him and like Dillinger and all those were my dad's bad guy heroes. I guess I sort of looked at uh, D.B. Cooper as, as my outlaw, you know, the, uh, kind of quietly rooting for him. Right. Uh, I became a newsman. I dealt with a lot of uh, uh, good guys and bad guys. And then I became, I was recruited by the state of California to become uh, a police, fire, and military trainer uh, in crisis management. Uh, it was at a time in the business when everyone said no comment. Uh, uh, when it came to the media showing up in an, at a crime scene. Uh, we, in the 80s, uh, they recruited news people to help train police chiefs and media people to unfold their arms and, and talk. And that's what I uh, did, and I taught for 18 years at Camp San Luis in California. And because of that, uh, and I will also say I uh, uh, feel I have a strong sense of justice, just like my wife, and we have been supporters of law enforcement ever since. In terms of the official investigation into the D.B. Cooper case, when did it sort of peter out and, and it became essentially, well, they didn't officially close the file, I guess, but when did they basically say, that's it, we, you know, no mas, we give up? Well, I would tell you that um, they stopped showing um, pictures to the three stewardesses and a passenger, and we'll talk about him later, uh, Bill Mitchell, a passenger in the jet. Those were the key witnesses. They really stopped uh, visiting them, and they were showing them 10 photos at a time, sometimes every week. Then it went down to a month, every month. Then it went down to four or five times a year. I would say about 74, 73, 74 is when that big rush was uh, closing down. But they, op- they had a task force, uh, both uh, online and offline, uh, looking at this case, and that continued all these years. All right. So then, when did you become involved in the case, and, and, and what were the circumstances that, that got you assembling this cold case team? I got approached by a cameraman I've known for 20 years in Vegas, and he tips me two to three times a year, um, in, and he's been involved in some of my movie projects and breaking stories over the years, and he called me and said, I've got a guy here, and he has a little network of uh, casinos, that sources that tip him. He said, I've got a guy here who had to get something off his chest. And I sat him down. He claims to have uh, uh, known Cooper. And I'm like rolling my eyes like everybody that hears that story. Right, here we go again. Yes. Uh, but then he said something that I had heard from law enforcement in training classes for years. And that is, he brought up But this guy says he witnessed the planting of the money on the Columbia River in 1980. Now, I would tell you that's when I grabbed my steno pad because I'd been hearing from law enforcement for years. No one believed that that money just happened to wash up on the shore and sit there for seven years and bury itself, and it happened to still have the rubber bands on top. Right. Uh, They just never bought that story from the couple and their son. Uh, the son was only eight years old, so I believe that they just didn't trust the couple. And this was a small portion of the ransom. It was about $5,000. $5,800, to right. be exact. 
Okay. And uh, it was uh, found only uh, two to three inches down uh, on a beach, uh, and it just didn't make sense. Uh, there was a fisherman who fished there for 10 years every day. The only day he missed, he said, when he posed to Santa Claus. He had a long beard every Christmas. And he said, there's no way that money washed up shore. I was there every day. And then the farmers that owned the land would take their cattle out every two weeks to water. They said the same thing to the FBI. That, that money couldn't have been sitting there more than a week. So, um, But the FBI announced at the microphones, well, it appears that Cooper could have drowned. In other words, they went with the attitude that uh, he drowned, the money came out of his back backpack and, and washed ashore. Washed up shore, as you point out. Washed up shore. <laughs> and his bones must be out there somewhere. Right, right. That was the philosophy they took. Well, that's what I was left with. One source who happened to be a drug dealer. Uh, he was working for a cocaine, a Colombian cocaine dealer in Portland. Uh, and he was retired, about to become a, a grandfather. Uh, he was in the cocaine trade for 15 years in the 70s. Um, about, and uh, then he moved on to other things, but all these years later, he wanted to get that off his chest. So Richard sent me the tape. I looked at it, and I called this man, and I spent the next eight months looking into his drug dealer. Uh, first thing we found out is the drug dealer had died mysteriously within a year. Uh, one car accident on a lonely road outside Portland. Um, then I said, well, we need other sources, and he brought me two other drug dealers. Uh, <laughs> the middleman for the drug dealer himself and uh, our source's drug runner, partner. Uh, our source and his partner were ones that ran to Phoenix back and forth on cocaine runs. Well, they were at this party uh, at working, I should say, in Portland. And uh, their drug dealer one day asked them to come sit in the back of his Bentley. He was uh, had a chauffeured Bentley. I mean, this was when cocaine just had hit. Cops weren't very organized. They didn't know the danger of cocaine. They hadn't even uh, set up task forces yet. And so this was a time of exploration when it came to the cocaine trade. And so they were openly out in their, you know, their chauffeur-driven Bentley, and here is this drug dealer, his name was Dick Briggs, and he tells our guy Ron and his partner, he's thanking them for two years of work, and then he says, I want you guys to know I'm D.B. Cooper. Mm -hmm. Well, both of these guys didn't buy it. He was shorter than the sketches they'd been seeing, and this, by the way, he sat them in the back of the car in 1979. So it's eight years eight later. Eight years later, right. And he says, I was Cooper. And these two guys, you know, everybody claimed they were Cooper for the last decade in Portland. And he didn't look anything like the, the sketch. He was shorter. He was stocky. He was a weight builder. And uh, they didn't buy it. Well, for a whole year, he tried to convince them. He even took one of them to the annual D.B. Cooper party that goes on in Washington State every year. Uh, at a bar, and he put on a I'm a D.B. Cooper shirt, and he said, boy, I wish I could tell these people who I am. And again, the, the drug traffickers, well, yeah, sure, boss, was the attitude they had. And at the end of the year, uh, three or four days before the money was found, this drug dealer is at a party with these guys, and they said, come here, come here. Now, I know you guys don't believe I'm Cooper, but I'm going to prove it to you. You see that couple over there? And he pointed out what our drug runner said was the couple 
that found it. Uh, you see that couple over there? They and their son, and then he stepped to the window of this apartment building on the Columbia River, and he said, you see on the North Shore over there? In four days, they're going to find my money. And they knew exactly what he meant. And again, they said, sure, boss, sure. They thought he had lost him. And so they headed off on a drug run, and they stop in Reno. They're at a hotel at 10 o'clock at night, three days, four days later. And Ron is taking a shower. He's come out. The TV's on. And there is the couple, Ron says, with their boy on that Tuesday explaining how they fund the money on the North Shore. Right. And mm. Ron and his partner decided they were, you know, they had an honor code, even in the drug trade. We're not going to say anything. And they kept it quiet for 40 years until that day in the casino when my cameraman got the story of his life. Now, why would they, the police, the investigators, make the association between that money found and D.B. Cooper? I mean, were there serial numbers on the, on the bills? Yes, and thank you for mentioning that. Every one of them had serial numbers. Uh, while Cooper, uh, there's some disagreement if he insisted on $20 bills or not, but what the FBI did do, they tried to keep them all out of the mint in San Francisco, I believe, so they had certain stamps, and, and, and they all tried to keep them in the year 1969, if I remember correctly. But that's all they did. There was no sequence of orders. He wanted them all mixed up, so, and so they gave him huge stacks. Uh, this money was had been set aside by a bank, not for this particular hijack, but in case the authorities... And, in uh, Seattle needed money quickly. The money had been set aside, so they wound up taking photos of the money and they wrapped it up and gave it back to him. So the, 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 the serial numbers on the bills found by this family on the Columbia River in 1989 years after the uh, hijacking, they did match. Exactly. They so, matched. All right. And the... Um, the, the people, do we know, was it D.B. Cooper himself or the, this, this drug runner who claimed that he planted the money or did he get his, his employees, his drug running pals to do it or how did that money get planted? Well, we believe it had to do with the actual couple themselves. We believe Mr. Briggs was working with them. Um, let me just tell you how I got there. Uh, after realizing that uh, there was something here when he mentioned the story, as I said, I spent eight months looking into this, and we did track down two other drug runners, and we did interview them. We interviewed our first source with the leading former FBI polygrapher in the country, and he's one of the most famous in the world, Jack Tremarco, and he has now done documentaries on Dr. Phil, a show out here in, in Los Angeles, and I recruited him to give this drug runner a test, and he passed. And so we moved forward with that and started calling Dick Briggs' family and associates to find out, could this drug dealer uh, Ben D.B. Cooper, as these two men were told? All right, Thomas, we are coming up on a, a break here. Thomas Colbert, co-author, The Last Master Outlaw, how he outfoxed the FBI six times, but not a cold case team. The legendary D.B. Cooper case solved, perhaps. When we come back, we have to find out why, nine years after he disappeared, 
over a uh, in the uh, the rainforest of the Pacific Northwest. Why did he wait nine years to plant that money? What was going on? We'll get to that when my conversation with Thomas resumes. Stay with us. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thomas Colbert is with us, co-author of The Last Master Outlaw, how he, D.B. Cooper, outfoxed the FBI six times but not a cold case team. Uh, now, before we get to the cold case team, I've got to ask you one more question, and that is why does Dick Riggs, this drug dealer in Portland who claims to be D.B. Cooper, why does he, eight years after the, the hijacking, decide then uh, to, uh, to to bury this money to make it look like he drowned in the Columbia River? Well, it turned out there was a crime partner he did it for. Now, I didn't know that, and the drug runners didn't even know it. They truly believed their drug dealer, who had the Cooper money, was Cooper. That's all they could think of. But I spent eight months, and not only did we find out that Dick Briggs was just a party boy, I wasn't asking old friends from grammar school and high school, hey, could he have been Cooper? I was saying, could he have taken down a train? Could he have robbed a bank? And they said, no, he wasn't that smart. And I phoned his final friend, a frat brother, Pudgy Hunt, well-known basketball player in high school and college in Oregon with all sorts of records and a bar owner. And I called him, and it was his best friend. And Pudgy said, when I asked him, I was honest. I said, Pudgy, they're saying, uh, former drug runners that you know ran with him, were saying that he was Cooper. And he laughed and he said, there's no way he was Cooper. In fact, I think he was in my bar that day. Well, my shoulders just went right down. But then Pudgy said, but you know, I did interest, uh, introduce Dick Briggs to a former Vietnam vet. In fact, he used to be a D.B. Cooper suspect. It was on a floor job. We were laying a floor in California, and he went to work for him. His name was Robert W. Rackstraw. Now, I had heard that name. He was blown off because he was a Californian, yes, a Vietnam vet, but uh, he was just ignored. And I looked into this man who was cleared by the FBI in 1979, coincidentally, He was facing local charges in California at the same time that money was found on the shore. In between trials and bail, this man escaped not once, but three times by plane, and once, I'm going to argue, by river. He had, in one of his escapes, rode a motorcycle all the way up to Portland to meet with Dick Briggs. This was 14 months before the money was found on the shore. He had jumped bail, and a witness who happened to be the drug dealer's own son, who was 13 at the time, watching from a window in their house, he identified Mr. Rackstraw meeting his father on the driveway. In fact, he went down to introduce himself. And that's how he met Mr. Rackstraw 14 months before. It's our argument that we believe This was one of five meetings between Dick Briggs and Mr. Rackstraw, and this was one to plant the money. Now, as I suggested earlier, Mr. Rackstraw had some trials to get through. He didn't expect a lot of time. In fact, he only got sentenced to two years, 
in July of 79. He was out in a year, but during that year, the money was found on the shore, and the FBI announced, well, apparently, it looks like Cooper drowned. They were suspecting Mr. Rackstraw was Cooper. In fact, for that whole year, during his escapes, the FBI were trying to interview him. They absolutely thought he could be Cooper. In fact, I've identified eight different FBI agents leaking to local press that Rackstraw was being looked at as Mr. D.B. Cooper. Well, he has a, he's an incredible con artist, and he talked his way out of it, but let me tell you, when that money was found on the shore, four months before he was out of jail, that was, uh, you might say, uh, a find worth dying for. Because right. he was able to walk out under his own name. In other words, the authorities were getting close on ident- as a, uh, in identifying Rackstraw as D.B. Cooper, so he had to throw them off the trail, and that's when he decided to, to bury the money on the shores of the Columbia River, and that sealed the deal for the authorities. He said, well, no, that's proof. This is not D.B. Cooper. D.B. Cooper drowned. Well, they spent the next year or two looking and digging and find, trying to find bones and more money and everything, and they didn't find any more solid money. They didn't find the bones. But by that time, they had cleared Mr. Rackstraw, and he uh, turned his life around. He uh, hit the books after he got out of year of jail. He got three college degrees. He became an expert in arbitration. He became a professor at UC Riverside in California. In fact, he became head of the law department for two of his ten years. And now he's retired, living in San Diego, but he's not fooling our team. Thomas Colbert is the co-author of The Last Master Outlaw, how he outfoxed the FBI six times, but not a cold case team. We're heading into another break. Uh, I want to talk about how this cold case team came together. Yep. Um, and, And it's spearheaded by a couple of former FBI agents who... Uh, I guess worked on the case. We'll uh, we'll get into all of that and more when the conspiracy show returns in mere moments. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett. Thomas J. Colbert, co-author, The Last Master Outlaw, he and his uh, cold case team, hot on the trail of D.B. Cooper, alive and well, and uh, living under, uh, well, is, that, is, was that, is that his real name, Rackstraw? Were we able to determine that, uh, Thomas? Robert W. Rackstraw. Rackstraw. Senior, I might add. All right. Because there's a junior, uh, there's a number one and number two that follow him. A son and a grandson, Robert W. Ragstraw. All right. Tell me a little bit about the the cold case team you put together. I want to mention first um, all these wonderful slides and pictures that you're putting up on the website and also online. Uh, Please let your listeners know they can go to dbcooper.com. We actually own that website. And they can read about all this incredible 102 pieces of evidence there. dbcooper.com. Correct. All right. Thank you for that. So, um, as far as the cold case team, uh, we went to the FBI after finding this connection to the drug dealers and Mr. Rackstraw, and the FBI passed on our 33 pieces of evidence because it wasn't enough, obviously, to get involved, but they encouraged us to move forward. We eventually got an email from headquarters after we gave them several 
pieces of evidence, and they said, we will accept your evidence. So we decided to create a secret uh, elite team, uh, 40 members, and because of my connections to law enforcement and the media, I was able to assemble uh, a 40-member team. 23 of them are feds, 12 of them FBI. Uh, we have U.S. attorneys. We have uh, uh, U.S. marshals, customs heads. Uh, they've been fantastic. And they uh, helped identify Mr. Rackstraw's 45-year trail uh, in 21 American states, five countries, including Canada, uh, where he used uh, almost two dozen different aliases and identities uh, and raised three families and while uh, living in six careers. I mean, this man is off-the-scale genius. And that is one reason the FBI, he ran circles around the FBI. And uh, what of his, his background uh, in Vietnam? Paratrooper? I mean, he sounds like, a, like an Audie Murphy-type character with uh, a distinguished flying cross. I think he won three of those, or was awarded three of those. Uh, he had 50 medals. Uh, he had two flying crosses, silver, bronze, 37 air medals. Uh, he, was the co- he was the pilot for the general that led the Cambodian invasion. The generals wanted this man because he was a daredevil, a go-to-hell jumper, and an incredible pilot. Um, uh, so he, he became everybody's favorite guy, one of the most uh, recognized men. But he had some problems, and that is when he wasn't flying, he was a rule-breaker. He went out illegally with the Special Forces and uh, the CIA on missions, sometimes two or three days at a time. Uh, he was riding around in a stolen commander's Jeep. Um, he, uh, he was a rule breaker. He was stockpiling weapons he shouldn't have. And finally, he lied about his rank and his education. This man turned out when they looked at him, and those lies are the ones that got him booted after seven years. This man not only didn't go to two colleges like he claimed, he was a high school dropout in the forests of California, uh, up in the Redwoods. He was self-taught. He learned everything in a library. And he lied his way through the military. So that's why they booted him. Despite his uh, his valor. Correct. Yeah, it was a... It was a big decision, and it was five months before the jump that he came home to his family in Valley Springs, California, where he had a 24-year-old sister and his mom and dad in the general area. And his sister uh, described to us that he was uh, glum, he was angry, he wrote a letter to his commanders that the FBI later talked to the sister about. So you might say uh, Cooper was known to have told the stewardesses, I have a grudge. He was asked if he had a grudge. He said, I don't have a grudge against your airline. I just have a grudge. Well, five months earlier, he told his sister he did, did have a grudge. He was angry at the military. Did you, did you uh, personally interview Rackstraw? We confronted Rackstraw. We tried for six months to get him to sit down because he was arrested, as I told, I mean, he was suspected uh, in 1979, 78, but he was never charged as Cooper. So that was our entrance to reach out to him and say, look, we're doing a historical documentary on D.B. Cooper, which is what aired on History Channel. It covered a lot of different suspects. But we said, we want to interview you, and we want to talk about how you were wrongly arrested. That dance went on for six months. 
And finally, we confronted him. We went down with cameras, ambushed him at his boat shop uh, near where he had a boat at a yacht club. Poverty Sucks is the name of the boat. You'll see it on the photos that you have. And we confronted him. I had some former FBI armed with me for protection. We didn't know what we were facing. And you can go up on dbcooper.com and see about three minutes of the confrontation where he, he puts his foot in his mouth a few times. And still, none of this is good enough for the FBI. That's the sad point. The FBI had been working with us quietly for three to four years. We had a letter from headquarters. And when we were ready to turn in the 102 pieces of evidence with my team, they canceled the meeting the week before. And then they went on History Channel and announced the file was closed. A representative for the FBI, who was a liaison for History Channel, told us, on camera, but it wasn't in the doc you saw, or anyone saw, he announced that, well, they're afraid of a circumstantial case. They're worried that old witnesses and any type of evidence could be corrupted after 45 years. Well, we were aware of that, and that's why I brought in the best team ever. We have great DNA, we have great forensics, and we have incredible witnesses, but the FBI won't look at it, they closed the file, and that's why two weeks ago, with my attorneys, I stood in front of federal court in Washington and announced we were suing the FBI and the DOJ to reopen the case. Now, obviously, this book, The Last Master Outlaw, you know, is heavily lawyered because he's, oh, yeah. he's still out there and, and you're accusing him of being D.B. Cooper. We know he's Cooper. I, I, I honestly can say that. After, first of all, this is the investigative report that my investigators and former FBI prepared for their protégés. I mean, these are some of their mentors that put this together. When they refused to receive this, we transferred it to this. And this has 47 pages of endnotes. The, the writing was fun and difficult, but let me tell you, I'm going back to fiction after this. <laughs> I'll bet. Six weeks, 13-hour days, and we got it in. And not one libelous thing in it. We got immediate insurance. And online, you can find Rackstraw posting under Airborne Bob, which is what they called him in Vietnam. Right. Female is posted saying, he can't find an attorney. Nine times he's asked for attorneys. He can't get one. So he's been threatening for three years. But the FBI and Bob hate this book. And, and the FBI, it's, I guess it's a source of embarrassment because they had him six times and they let him off the hook. Six separate times. My favorite one is when he, he crashed, a, he was flying a pilot from Michigan to California for an owner, crashed in Idaho on a farm. Farmer ran out, and he says to his co-pilot, don't say a word. And the sheriff shows up, the state police, and the FBI shows up. And Mr. Rackstraw talked his, himself out of that. That was only two and a half years after the jump. And I wrote in the book, uh, he convinced the FBI he wasn't the droid they were looking for. We just have a few moments uh, left, but share with us some of the DNA evidence, because this is in the era before uh, DNA evidence. What, what, do you, what do you have? Can you give us uh, one piece? The identity of Normandy Winter that he hid in the Northwest. Right. We have witnesses that have, he mailed them seven letters. We found a stamp from 1971 that has three alleles, partial DNA, that match a water bottle from a San Diego face-off we had with him with cameras. Uh -huh. An abandoned water bottle. 
We shared those three alleles, and we told the FBI, and again, they won't look at it. We also have, there's a quick Canadian angle to this. There were three letters mailed right after the hijacking from a D.B. Cooper. Ha, 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 you can't find me. You showed a letter with handwriting and numbers over it. That letter was written during the uh, Super Bowl of football that you had in Vancouver. Uh, he was there three days after the jump, and he wrote that letter. We compared that letter to the, uh, to the airline ticket, and a leading forensic expert says it appears to be the same man. So if you believe those four letters were mailed by Mr. Robert Rackstraw, first and last were mailed within miles of his home, then that puts him on the airline uh, ticket line. Indeed it does. Wow. And a lot. So what's, what's, the next, what's the next step then, Thomas? Well, the next step is we hear what the FBI wants to do. Frankly, I don't think they're going to reopen the case. Uh, I have a producer partner who is shooting in Vancouver as we speak. He and I are developing the answer to that, and that is we are designing a TV show, a TV show called The Trial of D.B. Cooper, and the jury will be the best jury in the land, social media. We're going to make it so that they can watch the trial, hear the evidence, and then the public will decide, is Mr. Rackstraw D.B. Cooper or not? And, I mean, was he or is he... Aside from you know being you know confronted by you and and uh, accused of being DB Cooper, I mean, it, is he a likable guy? He is uh, debonair. He is uh, incredible con man, and he's a nice guy. And I'll be honest, that's that's part of you know you always imagine a bad guy being a bad guy. This guy is charming. That's the where uh, the word we hear from all of his victims and witnesses. And frankly, it was six of his women. That turned him in. Right, right. Yes, he left a trail of broken hearts. I guess. Yes, he did. <laughs> and and very quickly, we mentioned uh, the, the the passenger Bob Mitchell. Uh, did you ever go back to, to Bob Mitchell with a, a photograph of of uh, Rackstraw and and uh, what happened right. with Mitchell? Bill Mitchell was the only passenger, and again, he didn't know about the hijacking. That we, the all three stewardesses had traumatic memory loss. That's been documented. He did not, because he didn't know about the trauma. He did not know what was going on. So we sat him down with a Portland sergeant on my cold case team with six pictures, and guess who he pointed at? Mr. Bob Rackstraw. Aha. There you go. Another piece of the puzzle. Thomas, uh, wow, congratulations. Um, Thanks, Richard. Ne- Amelia Earhart and Jimmy Hoffa. Do you want to take those ones on? No, I'm going for Bigfoot. <laughs> Bigfoot. Hey, I can't think of anyone better. Seriously. Thomas, a pleasure. And uh, once again, congratulations on The Last Master Outlaw. You got it. We'll keep you updated. I appreciate it. Yes, let's let's do that. God bless. God bless you. Thank you. All right. Wow. Another one solved. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, we sort of got to the bottom of the whole Howard Hughes chapter in history and... Uh, Tonight, tonight, uh, D.B. Cooper. What's next? How are we going to top this one? I don't know. Anyway, uh, my thanks to Will Power and uh, Albert Vinzel. And uh, next week, as I mentioned, Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin will be along. And um, 
Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator. We'll do another paranormal news roundup, and we'll also do another edition of What's in the Box. Are you good for that, Albert? I hope you're not uh, discouraged. No, I'm, I'm good for it. Well, we were close. Play car, four wheels, truck. I mean, if, if you go back to the analysis, it's it's sort of in there, in between the lines. Did you write that on your notes? I hold back sometimes, but... Stop doing that. Stop <laughs> holding back. All right. All right. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. <laughs>